Amen. Thank you guys for that worship. Good morning, Lamisa. How is everybody doing? Amen. Well, I wanted to uh, do a couple of little housekeeping things before we get going. Uh, did everybody get my email this week? I keep bringing that up because if you haven't signed up to receive our emails, you can do that at fumclamisa.com at the bottom of the page. There's a place where you can subscribe to receive our emails. If you don't do email, and I know some of you don't, you can get a fall calendar right out here uh, on the back table here in the foyer or in the entryway. Yeah, there's a, a calendar of events coming up this fall. We've got some special services, and so we just wanted to make you aware of some special Sundays you might want to go out of your way and be sure and be here. Of course, every Sunday is special, but we have some extra special ones, and so we wanted to uh, make you aware of those and let you know all of the good things we have planned for this fall. Uh, we've got some exciting things coming. And of course, today we have a new sermon series that we're kicking off, the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Now, just to kind of keep you... Uh, just kind of keep you aware of our tradition and how important these passages of Scripture are. Our father, John Wesley, preached 13 sermons on Matthew chapters 5 through 7. They're in his 52 sermons that were extremely important uh, for him to have his early preachers be preaching from. And so these were extremely important passages to him. Maybe he preach more on these than anyone else. And so it's an extremely important part of our history. And I would go so far as to say, and I'll, I'll make the case this morning, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, was probably Jesus' bread and butter sermon that he preached everywhere that he went. These are some of the most important passages in Scripture that we can study together and discuss together. So these are very important uh, weeks that we've got in front of us, uh, just praying that God helps us to really enter into, uh, we're just going to be scratching the surface of these, but hopefully it just starts a process in our minds and hearts, it plants seeds that, that God does that just draws us in deeper to the, the information that God has for us. So if you want to turn to Matthew, actually chapter 4. I want to put you in the mindset of where we're at when Jesus, whenever Matthew begins telling us the contents of Jesus' message from the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to let you kind of know the scene that's been built for us by Matthew. First of all, Matthew has connected Jesus with King David in Matthew chapter 1. Some very important promises have been made to the Jewish people. It was made to a man named King David in the Old Testament. God promised King David that someone from your line, from your own family, would sit on your throne of Israel forever. Forever, someone from your family will sit on your throne, King of Israel. And so Matthew is very careful in chapter 1 to connect Jesus with the bloodline of King David. Next on the scene, John the Baptist comes. And John the Baptist is preaching, and he is confronting the religious leaders 
of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're not just religious leaders, they're also political leaders. And this is the part where I want to I frame this to kind of get us out of our church bubble a little bit so that we can understand what's really going on here. There are layers to this that we don't typically catch in the church. The religious leaders of Old Testament Israel were also their political leaders. Are you with me, church? And so John is confronting them in a very harsh and abrasive way. He is indicting them for their poor leadership. And because of that, John gets sent to prison and he gets moved out of the way. And this is the context which, which Matthew is painting for us where Jesus comes on the scene in a large sense to, sense to pick up where John left off. Jesus is picking up where John left off. And so here we are in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He has been uh, identified by God as his unique son. He's been in the the wilderness uh, suffering temptation. Remember, one of the temptations that Jesus received is Satan offered Jesus all of the kingdoms of this world. You remember that? Again, a political position and appointment. Satan offers it to Jesus. Jesus says, no, thank you. And here we are in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes through all of the temptations. He passes all of them. And look at what it says in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Other translations might say the gospel of the kingdom because that's what good news means is gospel. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Matthew chapters five through seven is the message that the scripture identifies as the gospel of the kingdom. Now, what most of you are probably familiar with when we bring up that that word gospel is the message that your sins are forgiven, correct? When most of you hear that phrase, that's automatically where your mind goes. The message that Jesus died for your sins, and because of that, we're made right with God and our sins are forgiven, and that is a critical part of the gospel. Are you with me? But that message in and of itself is not the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, by definition, that word kingdom is a political statement. Do you realize that? It's been so long since we've had those in history. We're so far removed from that that phase of history. A kingdom is a political statement. It's a form of government. Jesus went throughout the towns of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the good news is that that long-awaited promise that was promised to King David is coming to fruition right here before your eyes. 
You could, you could think about it like this. Jesus is going throughout the towns of Galilee. You could think of it like this on a political campaign rally. Let me say it in terms that you and I can understand. He's going on a political campaign tour, and he is describing what his kingdom is going to look like. That's what Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is teaching us. This is how my kingdom is going to be run. The people who partner with me in running this kingdom are going to be trained, and they've cultivated these qualities in their minds and hearts. And this is the good news because what, what the picture that Jesus paints for us, if we only had politicians like that, guess what, church? Things would be really good. And so Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we're, we're going to be discussing the gospel of the kingdom. And it's important. It's critical because Jesus is saying, my kingdom will be populated and characterized not only by people who have cultivated these qualities, but most importantly, the leaders in my kingdom must have cultivated and developed these qualities. And so Matthew chapter, chapters 5 through 7 this is the context. This is the big picture that Jesus is discussing. And I'm going to read to you three key principles as we, we're going to go through this verse by verse in the coming weeks. We're going to do an overview today. And I'm going to show you three key principles from this Sermon on the Mount that we want to keep in mind as we're going through these. Let's look at the first one. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount is stated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Now hear this, <clears throat> and when I've done this in other places, I've called it the Summit Series, and I've, I've put a picture of Mount Everest on the cover of the material, because how many of you know Mount Everest is the most challenging mountain to climb? And so I've referred to this as the Mount Everest of the Scripture, because here is the goal. Matthew five forty eight. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The goal, church, is perfection. How many of you feel a little intimidated by that? And that's good. You're hearing me correctly. That's exactly the appropriate response. It is a very intimidating and daunting and according to human terms, impossible task. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? Listen, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let's not bring to that some, some baggage according to our definitions of perfection. In Scripture, perfection is not like some finished product that is impossible to be improved upon. That's not what the Scripture is. is that's not the way the Scripture is using this word. Think of it like this, perfection. Having our motives, the motives of our heart cleansed from impurity. Having the motives of our hearts cleansed from impurity. In other words, our motives are always to get it right all of the time. That doesn't mean we actually do. That's different from our performance Having our motives cleansed and having our performance perfect are two different things. The scripture is talking more about our motives. My motives are to always get it right with God 
and with others all the time. Now, church, that does not mean that we never make mistakes. It does not mean that there's no room for improvement. It does not mean that we we no longer have anything to learn. That is not what it means. It simply means my motives have been cleansed, and my desire is to always please God and do right by other people all the time. You see what I'm saying? Now, this is, again... The goal of be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is nothing more than the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. This is, according to our tradition, this is what full sanctification means. It's what holiness means and Christian perfection. It all means the same thing. Loving God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Listen, for millions upon billions of years, we will be growing and developing and improving. So we're never a finished product. But the motives of our heart, if we follow these steps, can be cleansed in such a way that we get it right with God and with others almost all of the time. Let's go to the second one. That's the goal of the Sermon on the Mount. It's perfection. And Jesus describes what the way is going to be like to perfection in Matthew chapter 7, 13. You guys will know this verse, Matthew 7, 13. On the way to perfection, if you choose to embrace that as your goal, which the Sermon on the Mount calls us to do, here's what the way is going to look like. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The reason being, the road to the the challenge that Jesus issues is going to be extremely difficult, implicit in that statement. Entering the path is narrow, staying on it is extremely difficult, Implicit in that statement is that the road to perfection, biblically defined, is going to be riddled with hardships and setbacks and failures. It's implicit in that statement. Most people will quit, Jesus says, because the path to get there is so difficult It's so riddled with hardships and setbacks and failures that most people will give up along the way. And I would posit, just speaking from my own experience, my own emotional chemistry, that most people along the way are so acquainted with their own sense of failure along the way, how little progress they're making, how hard the journey is going to be, questioning whether or not it's worth it, questioning whether or not they're cut out for it. Most of the time along the way, people are so acquainted with themselves and their own sense of weakness and failure that they're very tempted to quit along the way. And I would say they even feel like losers in the process. There was a thing, uh, as I was thinking about this message and I've told this story many times in church. <clears throat> you know, the, the challenge of perfection is a severe challenge. 
And it points to, again, something we're losing touch with in the modern church, a severe God. Our God is intense, church. Romans 11.22 says, Behold, both the kindness and the severity of our God. He's both of those things. And Jesus is depicted in Scripture as both a lion and a lamb, correct? And we have to, have, we have to hold both of those things in tension. And so that goal of perfection is a severe challenge. And our Heavenly Father expects his very high expectations for every one of us. You know, it made me think about my dad, my own dad. You know, my dad uh, was a severe man. He kind of grew up in a rough household. He had a rough upbringing, five brothers and sisters. His dad was a World War II veteran. He came back from the war, probably a little distraught. And he worked on the oil fields. He was a roughneck. Sometimes he was a roughneck. Sometimes he was a professional gambler. Sometimes he just wasn't there. So my dad grew up in this kind of household. Since his dad worked on the oil fields, he went to 13 different high schools. And so, and and you can imagine in the oil fields, some of those towns were pretty rough, right? And so my dad had to learn to deal with life, the circumstances that he was given. One of the things he used to do, he and his older brother, every time they'd go to a new high school, They'd find out who the toughest kids in the school were, and they'd pick a fight with them. That way, whether they won or lost, nobody else was going to mess with them. And so my dad kind of developed a way of dealing with life that was not all that healthy, and that carried over into his adulthood. I'll never forget when I was a little kid. You know, my dad was, he went on to be a a first sergeant in the National Guard, and, of course, an athletic director and a coach. He coached everything. His favorite sport was wrestling. And I'll never forget, I was a little kid. I was probably three or four years old, and I was out on the football field. My dad was coaching football. And one of the players found out who I was. He was like, who's that little kid over there? Oh, that's Coach Meek's son. And so he walks up to me, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he looks at me with all the pity in the world on his high school face, and he says, I'm sorry. You know, fast forward like 35 years, I'm in my late 30s, not not 45 years, fast forward about 35 years, and I'm in my late 30s, and I was, you know, I'd moved to Broken Arrow to to start a church, and just to be clear, the church that we started, uh, we started with unchurched people. So 95% of the people that we started the church with weren't going to church anywhere. We weren't like stealing or poaching people from other churches. And so one of the things I did to make a living was I was a house painter. I had a friend of mine, and I painted houses with him. That's kind of how I earned a living while we were doing that. And one of the houses that we were painting in was a guy that I'd known from high school because his his son and I had wrestled together. And so I knew him, and he knew my family. My dad was very well known. In the state of Oklahoma, his teams finished in the top five in the state pretty much every year. And so this guy knew my dad. And as I was painting, we were conversing about a lot of things, and he stopped and he says to me, you know, Kendall, I hope you don't get offended by me asking you this, but I heard your dad was kind of rough around the edges. And I just kind of laughed on the inside, you know, 
And I, I had to admit, yeah, well, that's actually true, you know. And so you can imagine maybe for me what life was like growing up. But I go back to that little three- or four-year-old boy that had that high school kid standing in front of him. Just He really felt sorry for me because of who my dad was. And what he didn't know was in my little three- and four-year-old mind, I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. You know, because God is both severe and kind. And for me, for my experience growing up, my dad hugged me and kissed me every day of my life. My dad looked me in the eye, and he told me he loved me every day of my life. My dad would pull me aside and tell me he was proud of me for absolutely no reason whatsoever. I remember I was probably, you know, again, that time frame, three or four years old, and even though we weren't a church-going family, my dad pulled me aside in my room because I would come into him and he in my mom's room every night, you know, because I was scared about something. You know how little kids are. And so he pulled me aside and said, listen, I want you to pray with me. And so my dad introduced me to God and, and talking to God. He said, just pray that, uh, and he would lead me through a prayer. And, you know, of course, of course you know, as, a, as an adult looking back, I know that my dad probably just wanted some alone time with my mom, if you know what I mean. But, you know, nobody's most perfect, right, church? He introduced me to God and talking to God. And so in my little, my little brain, I had no idea what this guy was talking about. I told the guy that I was painting the house for that story, and he was, like, shocked. But here's the thing. That time frame in my life when I'd moved back to Broken Road to start that church and I was, I was painting houses, it was one of the best times. Some of the best work we did was during that time frame, but it was also some of the worst times of my life. You know, that first year when we were planting that church, you know, I had a family of four. We were a single-income household, and I made $12,000 with the church, and I made $7,000 painting, and somehow I provided for a family of four on that budget. You know, God really helped us. But during that time frame, I felt like a failure most of the time. I'll be honest with you, I felt like a loser. You know, when I graduated high school, <clears throat> I'm not saying this to brag, I'm just kind of painting the picture for you. I was, you know, I was all-state honorable mention in wrestling, president of the National Honor Society, voted most likely to succeed my senior class. So I had pretty high expectations for life. And here I am in my late 30s painting houses for a living, barely making ends meet, only by the grace of God, and I felt like an absolute loser most of the time. I was failing privately. I was failing publicly. I was failing personally, and that was all right in my face every day. But I remember in the middle of that, I was driving with my dad somewhere. I'm almost 40 years old. Keep in mind, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm driving with my dad somewhere. And this is the situation that I'm in. And out of nowhere, my dad turns to me and he says to me, you know what? 
I don't know what I ever did to deserve a son like you. You can't really describe how much a little statement like that means at a time like that. You know, church, when you think about the challenge that's been issued and the way that's described in Scripture as to how we get to the challenge Most of the time, we feel like failures because that's what we see every day. But also, most of the time, that's completely different from how God sees things. You know, God's a lot like that. In the midst of our little scratching and clawing, trying to move forward along the way, you know, we see how far we are from the destination. God says, sees that we're still on the road. And we're still committed to the path. And we're still making progress. That's what God sees. And when he looks at it, he sees, wow, that's amazing. I'm so proud that they're sticking with it and that they haven't quit. The difference between how we perceive things and how God perceives things, there's a huge distance between those two things. And I would just encourage us as we, as we approach this This subject, the challenge is extremely difficult. The failures are going to be, they're going to be often. They're going to be personal, private, and public, all of those. But God looks and he sees, wow, they're still coming. They're still signing up. They're still making progress. And he's extremely proud of that. I want to look at the last point. I'll close with this. There's a promise, a very important promise given to us, and it might surprise you in the Sermon on the Mount. It's from Matthew 5.19. You know, God knows that as long as the road is and as difficult as it is, we're going to need encouragement to stay committed We're going to develop this idea much more in the next series coming up in October called The Coming Kingdom of Heaven or Kingdom Come. But I want you to ponder this verse with me for a moment. And we'll close with this verse. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that, church? If you don't do the things that Jesus teaches about in the Sermon on the Mount and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And look at the next verse. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom. Of heaven. Let me tell you just a couple of things that that verse implies. The coming kingdom of heaven, the eternal paradigm, where we'll live with God forever in resurrected bodies on this earth, that's what the scripture teaches, that paradigm will be good for everyone 
but it won't be the same for everyone. That paradigm described in Scripture, it paints a picture, a scenario, in which, yes, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be so much more better than this life, and it will be good for everyone, but it won't be equally good for everyone. That is implicit in that statement. And I will say this, much like in this life, you've got the least and the greatest, and you've got this broad spectrum everywhere in between. At the end of things, God is going to evaluate our lives, and the final word that he has to say is going to mean everything to us in that moment. You know, just like that conversation with my dad in that moment, that little phrase that he spoke to me, it was like a ray of hope. It meant everything to me in that moment. How God evaluates our lives and how faithfully we stuck to it on that path is going to mean everything to us. And the consequences of that evaluation go way beyond whether or not we get into heaven or not. Are you with me? And I want to let that sink in as we move into this series. There is a promise embedded in there that goes way beyond whether or not we get into heaven or not. That evaluation will determine for all eternity where we fit on that spectrum. And that is a topic that's actually covered many, many, many places in the New Testament. When you get that paradigm in place, you'll see it everywhere. And so I want to do this. I want to... Uh, move on to communion, but I want to close with a word of prayer and just add, ask God's blessing over this time together as we study this. We just pray, Holy Spirit, your power and presence as we move forward in these verses and passages, give us the power to enter into them, to embrace them, to sign up all over again, to embrace the goal of getting it 100% right with you, having our motives cleansed, Pursuing 100% obedience in this life. Making that our goal for real. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Help us in our weakness, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things.